Hi, Professor Stanley here, and I am back with podcast part two over chapter 13 of your book, which is Disorders of Anxiety, Stress, and Trauma. We're going to start with anxiety, and when anxiety rises above even a mild level, patients often begin to experience a great deal of distress and suffering that can be both physical and mental. You know, anxiety disorders are among the most common disorders of mental health, and you will encounter patients with anxiety disorders in every clinical setting. Patients may initially present with a somatic complaint and be totally unaware that their discomfort is related to anxiety. I had a neighbor one time who went to the hospital because she believed she was having a heart attack because her anxiety had gotten so bad. Because of these factors, nurses work in all settings must be able to recognize and respond to anxiety that occurs within their patients. This is why we're working on putting some tools within our toolbox to help our patients be able to relieve their anxiety. Did you know that up to 15 or 20% of adults within the United States will have at least one anxiety disorder in their lifetime? And the medium age of onset is 11 years. You know, anxiety disorders are also one of the earliest appearing forms of psychopathology in patients. And risk factors for anxiety are females, problems in school, early separation from a parent, um, parental history of a mental disorder, poor financial situations and incomes. And many individuals diagnosed with an anxiety disorder will often have other anxiety disorder diagnoses as well. It is a clinical feature or comorbidity with many psychiatric disorders, including depression, substance abuse, um, many, many disorders have anxiety associated with them. So let's go ahead and start talking about the actual disorders that are related to anxiety. The first is separation anxiety disorder. We all are familiar with the concept of separation anxiety when it comes to young children because young children tend to go through a phase of separation anxiety. So this is not talking about that. This is talking about individuals with separation anxiety who have emotions and symptoms that are developmentally inappropriate and as such are significant. The DSM-5 criteria for separation anxiety disorder is listed on page 249 of your book. And I'll just go over a couple of those. It says recurrent excessive distress when anticipating or experiencing separation from home or from major attachment figures, persistent and excessive worry about losing major attachment figures or about possible harm to them, such as illness, injury, disaster, or death, persistent and excessive worry about experiencing an untoward event, which is like getting lost, being kidnapped, having an accident, becoming ill, that causes separation from a major attachment figure. So you can see that these, if they persist past childhood, could be very indicative of some real psychopathology going on. So that's why we need to uh, be sure to be aware of this as a disorder. The next one is selective mutism. And selective mutism is characterized by refusal or withholding of speech in situations where speech is expected, such as school, despite being able to speak in other situations. The disturbance interferes with educational or occupational advancement or with social communication and is present for at least one month time. The failure to speak here is not due to a lack of knowledge or comfort with the spoken language itself. And so that's our second one. So our third one is specific phobias. Um, You may actually have some phobias as well. They can be all different types. 
The first one is animal type, which is, you know, animals or insects. My daughter has a phobia of spiders, and it was due to a traumatic experience as a child where her brother had her watch arachnophobia with him, and then she saw a spider in her sister's hair. And so since that time, she's been afraid of spiders. Natural environment type, that could be elements in the environment, such as storms. So, you know, people that are maybe afraid of tornadoes, which is a common fear here in Oklahoma, maybe because of some experience they've had or seeing the destruction, the more tornado caused. Then we have blood injury infection type, which that may be the person who's very afraid of, you know, catching something from someone else or even seeing blood. A friend of mine used to pass out at the sight of blood. They had such a phobia about it. Then there's situational type, which is prompted by specific situations, which can include many, many, many things, such as tunnels. Um, I recently had a discussion with someone who said that they had actually driven an hour or two to avoid a tunnel in Pennsylvania. Maybe people afraid to go on the tunnel between England and France. Bridges. My son has a little bit of a phobia about bridges because he was in, um, I'm trying to remember the state, up there in uh, Minnesota, Whenever the bridge over I-35 collapsed, he was just about a week from being crossing that bridge. So since that time, he's had a little bit of a fear of bridges. And then they have other types too, which are prompted by other stimuli, such as fear of choking, vomiting, fear of loud sounds, or costume characters. I used to have a little bit of a fear of eating popcorn because the kernels would get stuck at the back of my throat. That would be a example. Now, obviously, with a phobia, it has to be something that is, you know, very intense and causes inter- interference with regular life. Because we all have some fears, right? But does it cause interference with your regular life? For example, if you have a fear of elevators, do you then avoid going to a building because you know it has an elevator? Are you able to overcome that when you need to? So as you can see, you know, we all may have some degree of a fear of something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it affects our quality of life. And that's what's significant here. We all have some anxieties and some fears, but yet how much does it interfere with your quality of life? So the next one is social anxiety disorder, formerly known as social phobia. And this is where the patient has a marked fear or anxiety about social situations in which there's a potential for embarrassment or scrutiny by others. And I love the way that it talks about in your book some of the cultural relativity of this because it talks about that in Japan and Korea, distress may arise if an individual blushes, makes eye contacts, or or becomes aware of offending others by having body odor. So you can see that this can vary significantly from culture to culture. And each culture may have different things that they consider to be a form of embarrassment that they may be self-conscious about. And when it gets really bad, that's when they can develop a social anxiety disorder where they try to avoid those situations, which might trigger that type of anxiety. The next one is panic disorder, and that usually occurs between adolescence and the mid-30s. Of course, it can happen earlier or later, and it's characterized by recurrent unexplained panic attacks followed with at least one month of either either or persistent concern about having additional panic attacks or significant changes in behavior related to the attacks. Both of those can occur or you can have one. But panic attacks can be very frightening for the person that suffers from them because remember when you have severe anxiety, which is what a panic attack is, you may actually feel like you're going to die. And if you take a look at the symptoms on page 250 of your book, they talk about palpitations, 
sweating, trembling, shortness of breath, feeling of choking, chest pain, dizziness, hot flashes. I'm sorry, but if I were feeling that way, I know that I would not want to be in that situation and that I might also have some avoidance of something I thought might produce that. That's a scary feeling to have a fear that you're actually going to die. And that's what many of our patients with panic attacks will experience. The next one is agoraphobia. And agoraphobia is basically a marked fear anxiety about situations in which escape could be difficult. So they talk about public transportation being a, a thing where agoraphobia could happen, open spaces, shops, theaters, or cinemas, standing in line or being in a crowd, or being outside the home alone in other situations. The median age for agoraphobia of onset is 20 years old. Um, I will also mention that women are more likely to suffer from anxiety disorders than men and from agoraphobia. And just in general, women do tend to be more prone to anxiety disorders. So our next disorder is generalized anxiety disorder, and it is characterized by symptoms of anxiety and worry about two or more domain, domains of activities or events, so like family, health, finances, school, or work, that occur more days than not during a period of at least three months. So the anxiety and worry in this case is kind of like a general feeling of restlessness, feeling on edge and being tense. And some people always have this, but it does have um, a marked avoidance of activities or events with possible negative outcomes, marked time and effort preparing for activities or events with possible negative outcomes, marked procrastination and behavior or decision-making due to worry, and repeatedly seeking reassurance due to your worries. Now, it's important to note that while occasionally anxiety is a normal part of life, people with generalized anxiety disorder may feel extremely worried or nervous about little things um, where there's little or no reason to worry about them. So it may be that they find it difficult to control their anxiety and stay focused on daily tasks. It could be that they worry very much about everyday things or have trouble concentrating and controlling their worries and feelings of nerv nervousness and know that they worry too much or more than they should. They may feel restless, they may have a hard time concentrating, be easily startled. All of these things can be a part of generalized anxiety disorder. In fact, if you'll take a look on page 251 of your book, it shows that people with generalized anxiety disorder have excessive anxiety and worry, and it can result in sleep disturbances, muscle tension, irritability, an inability to concentrate, fatigue, and restlessness. So these are the symptoms that you might experience with generalized anxiety disorder. Now, it is worth mentioning that there are other anxiety types of anxiety disorders as well, some which are induced by substances such as, you know, illicit drugs or things like that. Also, anxiety disorders due to medical conditions. So it's important to be aware that certain medical conditions can increase the risk for different disorders, such as migraines, obstructive sleep apnea, prolapse mitral valves, um, high blood pressure, believe it or not. And the thyroid is notoriously associated with a lot of different psychiatric disorders, including anxiety and the parathyroid. So if you have a patient whose calcium level is high, you might ask your physician to pull a parathyroid level because of the fact that parathyroid levels that are elevated can cause anxiety. I can tell you this from personal experience because I started experiencing anxiety and I thought, you know, I know I should be feeling anxious about a particular life event, but I don't think I should be feeling this anxious. And when they pulled a parathyroid level, mine was very elevated and a surgery fixed it. 
and then I no longer had that sort of anxiety that was extreme in that particular instance. Now, you know that I always like to tell a story to kind of illustrate the effect that these anxiety disorders can have upon your patient. And so I wanted to talk to you about a patient of mine that I had recently who was experiencing some pretty severe anxiety. And so she had gotten to the point where she didn't even want to leave her house. And so she had built an entire life around being within her house, and she ran a business out of her home. She actually was fairly affluent. Her business was quite successful. She had a partner who helped her with it, who was able to do the networking part in the community, and she stayed home. So she was very comfortable with this arrangement until one day she started to get lonely, and so she sought out some company by going to a website And she met a man, and this man came and met her in her home, and it was in that home that she was attacked. So suddenly, that little environment of safety that she felt that she had built around herself was no longer there, and she experienced extreme anxiety. It was so severe that the first few days that she was with us, she wasn't really able to tell us anything about what had happened. And finally, after two or three days, I was sitting there talking with her in the day area, and she says, I was raped. And I said, now what? And she goes, yeah, I was raped and I I need to report this. And even when the police came out, they doubted the veracity of her story initially and thought she might be psychotic because her thoughts were so disorganized because her anxiety had become so severe. They did go ahead and investigate, though, and found out that there was truth to it. And they went to her home and they were able to ascertain that she had indeed been attacked. And we sent her over and had a rape kit done. And they moved forward with prosecuting the individual that they felt had harmed her. So this is an example of someone who had severe anxiety and it became so severe that it disrupted their thought processes. And like almost all psychiatric disorders, when severe enough, it had led to an altered state of reality where she was unable to um, process her environment correctly and had an altered thought process. All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to obsessive-compulsive disorder. A patient with obsessive-compulsive disorder has recurring obsessions or compulsions that are so persistent that they take up an unreasonable amount of time. So while all of us may have some sort of OCD tendencies, the idea here is that this type of person is extreme. And there are some related disorders to obsessive-compulsive disorders we'll discuss as well. Now, the lifetime prevalence of OCD is about 2.3%. And let's go ahead and talk about what obsessions are, because remember, it's obsessive compulsive disorder. So obsessions are these recurrent and persistent thoughts, urges, or images that cause significant anxiety or distress. Themes of obsession may include contamination or repeated doubts, the need for things to be in a particular order, aggressive or unpleasant impulses, and sexual imagery. You know, I think some of you may have seen the movie that came out a few years. I think it was Jack Nicholson that was as good as it gets. And it portrays a man who suffers greatly from obsessive compulsive disorder. And he had to, you know, avoid certain cracks in the sidewalk. And he had to uh, wash his hands. And so if you have somebody who is an obsession, for example, about their, um, say, germs and maybe getting sick, then you might see a compulsive compulsion or compulsive behavior a repetitive behavior such as excessive hand washing. So the excessive hand washing might be based in the sphere of the fact that uh, he's afraid of germs. So remember, the obsession is the thought, impulse, or image that it persists and recur so that they cannot be dismissed from the mind. 
The obsession itself may seem senseless to the individual who experiences it, although they still cause the individual to experience severe anxiety. So common obsessions might include a fear of hurting a loved one, fear of contamination, um, such as, you know, through body fluids, germs, environmental contaminants like asbestos or radiation, or household cleaners and chemicals. Or it might be based in a fear of losing control, like acting out on an impulse to harm oneself or harm others, fear of violent or horrific images in one's mind, fear of blurting out obscenities or insults. So you get some idea of these are unwanted thoughts, even unwanted sexual thoughts, you know, forbidden or perverse sexual thoughts or images, obsessions about homosexuality, sexual obsessions that involve children or incest, or obsessions about aggressive sexual behavior toward others. So these are things that maybe the, you know, of course the individual doesn't want to have happen. So then a compulsion may develop, which is a ritualistic behavior that they feel driven to perform in in an attempt to reduce the anxiety. Common compulsions um, are repetitive hand-washing, checking a door multiple times. I must admit to the compulsion of checking my oven sometimes more than a couple of times whenever I'm leaving the house because it's based in the fear that I might leave something on that would burn my house down. (laughs) Came from my parents. Thank you. Other compulsions you might have would be like putting things in order and arranging things around until it just feels right. Telling, asking, or confessing to get reinsurance. Avoiding situations which may trigger your obsessions. Canceling or undoing. Example, replacing a bad word with a good word to cancel it out. Um, Praying to prevent harm to oneself or terrible consequences. Repeated, repetitive body movements like tapping, touching, blinking. There are many different things that can happen as a result of the obsession and the compulsion. So although they can exist independently of each other, they almost always go together in an obsessive compulsive disorder, the obsession with the compulsion. It usually exists along a continuum and normal individuals may experience mildly obsessive compulsive behavior like me checking the oven more than once. There's no reason for me to do that, but that's a mild obsessively compulsive behavior. Nearly everyone has had had some experience of having a song playing persistently through their mind despite attempts to push it away. Many people have had nagging doubts as to whether a door is locked or a stove is turned off, and these doubts require the person to go back and check the door or stove. Minor compulsions, such as touching a lucky charm, knocking on wood, you know, oh, I said something, oh, better knock on wood, making the sign of the cross upon hearing something disturbing. They're not harmful to the individual. Here again, it's a lot like the types of um, anxiety, you know, uh, coping mechanisms really has to do with frequency, intensity, and duration. How often are these things occurring and how much of a, like a disruption to your life are these behaviors causing you? Like me checking the oven two times before I leave the house does not cause me a great deal of distress or interfere with my normal function of life. Okay, let's go on to another one that I wanted to talk about. And this is where people tend to get really interested because these things are interesting to look at these different disorders that do occur. Body morphic disorder. And that is when a patient engages in repetitive behaviors. For example, they might check the mirror. They might excessively groom or seek reassurance from someone else. Or they might have mental acts such as comparing their appearance with that of others in response to a preoccupation with perceived defects or flaws. I used to have a friend in high school who 
frequently said, do I look okay? Do I look okay? Do I look okay? Several, several times an hour. And this was a, a probably an example of somebody with a body morphic disorder. They usually suffer from a pretty low self-esteem. And I will tell you, these are the ones where the person feels great shame and hides or withdraws from others. Others will alter their appearance through plastic surgeries. So you may be familiar with the women who have mutilated themselves through surgery to make themselves look exactly like Barbie, even going so far as to have ribs removed so that their waist can achieve the same level of uh, curvature that Barbie has. You may be familiar with that, and some of them have made quite a good living at it as a model. But these are examples of people who might be suffering from body morphic disorder. Individual with this individuals with this type of disorder have higher rates of suicide. You might see that because they are really struggling with some, um, it, some self-image related problems. And so they have higher rates of suicide, suicide attempts, and completed suicide than individuals who did not meet criteria for this disorder. It is often kept secret for many years, and the patient does not respond to reassurance. You can't tell them enough times a day that they look good. Pharmacological intervention for this is usually, um, you know, antidepressants using SSRIs and um, tricyclic antidepressants and cognitive behavioral therapy. And sometimes uh, second-generation antipsychotics can be helpful as well. Now let's go ahead and talk about hoarding disorder. You may be familiar with this because they produce TV shows on it. Hoarding disorder is characterized by continued difficult difficulty in discarding or parting with your possessions due to a perceived need to save the item and distress associated with discarding them. This can come sometimes from a place of, you know, having been very, very poor. I know you'll see people sometimes keep their possessions for that reason. And it causes them great anxiety in order to get rid of that. Um, in this case, it typically emerges, hoarding usually emerges in childhood or early adolescence. And individuals that suffer from this disorder may feel shame for their failure to discard excessive amounts of items. People with compulsive hoarding suffer extreme disruption in daily living and severe distress. And you may have seen, if you've watched the television show, environments that are extremely unsanitary. And it costs them a lot. Their homes may be cluttered to the point where getting from room to room is almost impossible. And it may include garbage, trash, broken objects, old newspapers, books, and old clothing piled indiscriminately in their home. The kitchen may even be unusual, usable. Bed can't be slept in. I mean, there can be pretty bad situations out there. And I will mention, you know, we had this actually happen in my family. We had um, my uh, husband, ex-husband's family. They had a grandmother who passed away. And it took years to clean out her house because she was a hoarder and she had old newspapers stacked and piled and she had a little pathway through the house that you could get through. And she, the problem was, is cleaning it out was difficult because she had like old newspapers and wrapping paper. She would unwrap every present at Christmas and save the wrapping paper and fold it up neatly. She would have that mixed in with stock certificates and silver. And so, I mean, this was not a poor woman. She had some material goods, but she had hoarded to the point that she had things mixed in together. Another example would be a man that was hoarding artwork. He was actually an older gentleman and he had purchased from my father some of his sculptures. 
and it turned out that he was a wealthy individual who had spent his life accruing beautiful works of art, and he kept them all in his home, and his home was just filled with boxes, kept them in boxes, and for whatever reason, he just hoarded this artwork, and it had gotten to the point where he could hardly even move through his home, but he did purchase a sculpture from my dad, and my dad delivered it to him, and he added it to his collection of hoarded hoarded items in his home. He obviously wasn't enjoying any of them because they were all boxed up, but they were present. So for whatever reason, that was his hoarding item. So anyway, I just wanted to go over these because the students do tend to enjoy these, and they are things that you may see in care as you are taking care of patients. They're not as common. The body morphic and the hoarding disorder is not as, are not as common as the anxiety disorders, but they are certainly something that can be present. All right, let's go ahead and continue on with trauma and stress-related disorders. I want you to know that trauma and stress-related disorders are very, very common in our society. Um, the book says that about 7 to 8% of the U.S. population is estimated to experience a lifetime prevalence for PTSD. And about 5.2 million adults will be diagnosed with PTSD in the United States. Now, I'm also going to talk to you about reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder, and they say that they're relatively rare. I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, I don't know what the prevalence is supposed to be. I do know that I have seen this quite a bit because of the fact that I've worked in children's psych and because I've had a lot of contact with the adoption community. And I will tell you that many children who are adopted um, will suffer from reactive attachment disorder. Children with reactive attachment disorder do typically do not seek comfort when distressed and barely responds to efforts to comfort them. In addition, they often display limited positive affect and experience periods of irritability and sadness even during normal interactions with caregivers. Fearfulness also is seen despite the absence of apparent stressors and a history of persistent neglect and repeated changes in caregivers are common among children with reactive attachment. This is why you do see this a lot in the adoption community because there's often been um, children removed from the home who have abusive maybe caregivers in the beginning, and then they have a repeated change of, a care, of caregivers as they move through the foster care and adoptive system. I am going to leave it at that because I am going to talk more about reactive attachment disorder next week when we talk about disorders of childhood and adolescence. It is pretty common to see these things, especially on a children's psychiatric unit. Now, there is another disorder, which is called disinhibited social engagement disorder. And while you have the reactive attachment disorder children who have difficulty attaching to anybody, the disinhibited social engagement disorder are children who attach to everybody, and by attaching to everybody, they don't attach to anybody. Children with this disorder readily engage with unfamiliar adults, typically using language and behaviors that are outside the cultural norms of familiarity. They tend to wander from caregivers without seeking permission, even in unfamiliar settings. They may be very willing to go to strangers. Um, so nurses caring for children with histories of neglect or foster care should be aware that behaviors associated with this disorder may persist once the child is placed in an appropriate care setting. 
I will tell you that they say that in treatment that it's easier to make progress in children with reactive attachment disorder than it is in children with disinhibited social engagement disorder. My adopted daughter, she is a disinhibited social engagement disorder child, which put her at risk, at great risk when she was younger and still puts her at risk today for um, potentially being exploited by others because she attaches so easily and so quickly to other people. The next one is post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is very common. This is characteristic symptoms that occur following exposure to traumatic events. So you think about who might be people that might experience traumatic events. You know, it can be men or women. And for males, it could be that they maybe experience rape, combat exposure, childhood neglect, or childhood physical abuse. For women, it could be rape, sexual molestation, physical attacks, being threatened by a weapon, childhood physical abuse. All these things can bring about post-traumatic stress disorder. It is characterized by symptoms that can be extremely distressing. And right now, it's estimated that PTSD affects 2.2% of the population in America, or 7.7 million people. 11 to 20% of veterans of the Iraqi and the Afghanistan wars are said to be affected by post-traumatic stress disorder, which is 300,000 people. 10% of people will develop PTSD in their lifetime. And 55 to 70% of the population will experience an ad traumatic event in their lifetime. So anyway, you can see that it would be quite common. Um, when you do have symptoms, there's no way of knowing who's going to develop post-traumatic stress disorder after a traumatizing event. The majority of people who witness or live through a traumatic event will not suffer from PTSD. Most will likely have memories, but their lives will not become negatively impacted by it in their daily interactions. So symptoms of PTSD are grouped into different types. There is avoidance, intrusive memories, and changes in emotional reactions, and negative changes in thinking and mood. The most common symptoms, of course, of PTSD are flashbacks, jumpiness, um, emotional detachment, and these symptoms can come and go and vary in intensity. So the four types are avoidance, which is, you know, you don't want to think about it, you don't want to talk about it, you just want to pretend it never happened. Avoiding places, activities, or people that remind you of the trauma. Then there is intrusive memories, which that is where you may have flashbacks and reliving of the event as if it were happening all over again. And you'll understand a little bit more about this when we have our lecture on dissociative disorders, because many times PTSD survivors will um, experience a lot of dissociation types of symptoms where they may, you know, really believe that they're in that moment when they're experiencing this flashback. You might have upsetting dreams or nightmares about the traumatic event. You might have recurrent memories, even when you're trying not to think about it as if you just can't get it out of your mind. You might experience severe emotional distress or physical reactions to things that remind you of the traumatic event. Now, as far as the changes in emotional reactions, reactions, you might have overwhelming guilt or shame. For example, in the case of a rape, even though nothing could have been done to have avoided it, they may have overwhelming guilt and shame. Jumpiness, being easily startled or frightened. We might call this like hypervigilance of your environment, where you're just constantly on the lookout for what could happen next. Sleep disturbances, difficulty concentrating, you know, always in defense mode. Here again, that has to do with that uh, hypervigilance and always being in defense mode. Irritability, anger, aggression, and even self-destructive behavior like reckless driving or substance use. 
Then there might be negative changes in your thinking and, and mood where you might feel negatively about yourself and others, have anhedonia or a lack of interest in, in activities you once found enjoyable, difficulty maintaining relationships, memory problems, feeling of hopelessness about the future, emotional numbness. And just like I described earlier in that woman who came to see us on the psychiatric unit who suffered from anxiety and had been raped, she was experiencing some severe alterations in her ability to even process information and was somewhat out of touch with reality as a result of it. All right, so that's our main part of that. And of course, you know, PTSD can come from a a number of different things and can affect a number of different types of people. It may occur at any age. And I will say that the criteria for children is slightly different in the DSM, but it can occur at any point in time. Now, I'll let you know that also acute stress disorder is very relatable to PTSD and carries a lot of the same symptoms, but the big difference is is that acute stress disorder is supposed to be a self-limiting thing where it is time-limited to about four weeks, and if the symptoms persist <coughs> excuse me, beyond four weeks, then the diagnosis of PTSD is made, Okay. So there's a really good um, diagram on page 254 of your page. It shows a person and some of the different words that you might associate with PTSD. If you're someone who likes a visual image, I think it's a really good image to look at because it talks about like, you know, what can cause it. And it says flashbacks, hypervigilance, um, cognitive disturbances, depression, aggression, rape. I mean, all these different words that we might associate with it. Adjustment disorder is similar to the other trauma and stress-related disorders, and it's a response to a stressful event or events, but the response may be out of proportion to the stressor. Symptoms must occur within three months of the onset of the stressor and not continue for more than six months after the termination of the stressor. In addition, the stressor identified is not an event that rises to the level of severity that those may have who are identified under PTSD. And while making a diagnosis of adjustment disorder, clinicians should specify a subtype based on the patient's presentation and history. And that may include um, depressed mood, anxiety, mixed anxiety, and depressed mood disturbance of conduct, mixed disturbance of emotion and conduct, and unspecified. There's, what's going to happen is when you look at the DSM, it'll show you under each one of those you know, di- diagnostic criteria what characteristics meet each one of the phases. And that's kind of what's neat about the DSM is when you look at it, it'll make those t- types of determination based on the symptomology that is presenting to you. Now, I will tell you that when people suffer from these types of disorders, that treatment for them in its best form exists in many, many different avenues. Like, for example, you know, if you have a patient that presents to their primary care physician, they say, you know, I'm suffering from anxiety, they might just be prescribed a medication or depression, the same sort of thing. The problem is that this type of approach does not develop the coping skills that need to be formed in order for the patient to continue to manage the symptoms of the disorder, and it doesn't take a holistic approach of the patient. It's always best when we take a full-spectrum approach to meeting those needs of anxiety and stress and trauma by looking at it from not just a medical standpoint, but also from you know therapy and social therapy and all of that. So when you are looking specifically at medications, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over all of them except for one in particular from chapter 23, anti-anxiety drugs, 
antidepressants, and beta blockers may all be used to treat anxiety disorder. Yes, you did hear right. Beta blockers such as metoprolol or things like that will assist with anxiety disorders. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these right now because we are going to be going over them more during the semester. And I am planning to put one more podcast on the week five podcast list, which is going to specifically go over medications for anxiety management, which will include the benzodiazepines and some other ones like Buspar and maybe Metoprolol as well. So anyway, I am going to go over those, and I wanted to discuss them more specifically, so we will spend a little bit more time of that on another lecture. I did want to mention briefly that cognitive behavioral therapy is the main form of treatment for anxiety disorders. It helps the patient to change or modify unhealthy thought patterns and change their response to anxiety-provoking situations. It can be very helpful for patients to help them learn deep breathing and other types of exercises to relieve anxiety and to encourage relaxation. I will say that it can be done individually. It can also be done with a group. You may see group therapies that are in psychiatric units that are functioning well. You may see good group therapies, or you may see them you know, on an outpatient basis with psychiatrists or with uh, psychologists and um, therapists who do help them to... Um, adjust to life with an anxiety disorder so that they can function at their fullest potential. Some other things that may provide some relief from the distress for those suffering with anxiety may include exercise, relaxation techniques, breathing, herbs, and vitamins. Many types of exercise are free or relatively inexpensive, and it can be helpful in reducing the symptoms of anxiety. It actually has to do with the fact that there is some physiological benefit. So basically, your body produces its own little natural anti-anxiety medications when you, when you get out there and you exercise. Relaxation can also help, including deep breathing, which will activate the parasympathetic nervous system. Meditation, yoga, all of these things can help. And then um, when you breathe, they, I will teach you about some breathing in class, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. And there are some herbs and vitamins and supplements that are thought to help with anxiety, such as chamomile, ginkgo biloba, and some other ones I can't pronounce. In particular, the B vitamins, biotin, niacin, thiamine, pantothenic acid, riboflavin, B6, B12, and folic acid are all important for the production of neurotransmitters. Thiamine is very important for those who are prone to panic, anxiety, and depression. Becoming angry, crying, or getting run down expends thiamine. And so you can see why it would be very important to replace in psychiatric disorders. So please go ahead and take a look at the list of the herb and vitamin supplements on page 259 of your book. And I wanted to go over one more thing, which is the nursing management of people who are having anxiety problems. Like I've already said, we are going to put some tools in your toolbox because when you can help intervene in a patient that's experiencing anxiety to keep it from getting any worse and teach them some coping skills, you can do a lot as a nurse to really help that patient to be able to make it through a difficult situation or be able to calm themselves so that a procedure can be done or any of those things are important in nursing. Your own anxiety level, by the way, has a very contagious nature to it. Individuals who sense when someone is anxious may in turn become anxious. So here again, we have to do a self-check of our own anxiety cues and ask ourselves, do we get anxious easily 
what kind of circumstances make us anxious, what we need to do to manage our own anxiety, how we feel when we are around people who are anxious, and how we can help individuals who are anxious. When we do our own self-check and learn to control our own anxiety through the tools in our toolbox, we can then use them to help others. And as we've already discussed content from Chapter 7, which went over Orlando's deliberative nursing process, it can be helpful in working with individuals who are anxious. By validating our own perceptions, thoughts, and feelings about an interaction with a patient, we can determine whether or not we are accurately assessing the patient's needs. This may seem difficult when we have little time with patients during short interactions. However, determining with the patient what the immediate needs are at each interaction can help relieve the distress of the patient. And that's what we're all about, isn't it, as nurses? To help relieve the distress of the patient. When we are assessing an anxious patient, it is most helpful if we ourselves can remain calm, use open body language, you know, that's where your hands are at your sides and you're smiling, maybe, you know, leaning forward, keeping our voice low and speaking slowly and using simple and clear phrases. Remember not to think that the patient's going to remember much of this interaction, so this is not a time for teaching because they're anxious, they're not going to learn probably right now. We can speak in an assuring and calm manner. We can provide the amount and type of information only that the patient needs so that we can lower their anxiety level. So we can say, Mr. Smith, I can see that you're struggling right now, so we're going to breathe together. I want you to copy what I'm doing. So that's an example of how we can, with them, use a calm and tone of voice and really mimic for them what we want them to do, model it for them, so then they can do it. During our assessment of an anxious patient, we are going to look at their vital signs because many times, remember when the fight or flight response is triggered or there's a long-term chronic stress, blood pressure, pulse, and respirations are going to be increased. We're going to look at their demeanor. How is the patient coming across in general? Are they fidgety? Are they restless? Are they distracted? Are they looking all around? Do they have excessive body movements? What does their face look like? Are their eyes focused? Are they able to maintain eye contact? What are they doing with their mouth? Are they biting their lips, making movements with their mouth? Are they grimacing? Are their eyebrows tense, furrowed, or drawn? All of these things can indicate anxiety. What are their body movements? Are they wringing their hands or twitching somewhere in their face and shoulder and all? What is their voice level? Is it high-pitched, barely audible, soft, loud, normal? What is the pace of their speech? Are they pressured and rapid and speaking very quickly and going from one thought to the next? Or are they speaking slowly and normally and really talking in a normal tone of voice? What is their tone? Is it agitated or aggressive? Or is it more normal? Is it maybe quiet and really reserved? And what is it? Is their mouth dry when they attempt to speak? What are their behaviors? Do they have any rituals or compulsions? Are they like trying the door handle three times or using hand sanitizer three times? Are they coherent? Are they able to grasp what we're saying? Do they have repeated and troublesome thoughts or obsessions? Do they acknowledge having racing thoughts that they can't sleep? Um, What is their level of conversation? What is their content of conversation? Is it um, on things that are anxiety or fear producing for the patient? What is their level of anxiety based upon all these observations? So you can see that there's a lot to assess when we are looking at patients who might be anxious.
A lot of psychiatric units and a lot of nurses use a rating scale of 0 to 10 for a patient to rate their anxiety. And I will tell you that I regularly have patients rate their anxiety on a shift-to-shift basis for the adult unit assessment, and it is part of my assessment criteria in EPIC. It says, how would you rate your anxiety on a scale of 0 to 10, with 0 being no anxiety at all and 10 being the most anxiety you could possibly imagine, meaning high or very, very anxious? Then we might ask them how long they've been experiencing anxiety, what the pattern of the anxiety is for them. You know, does it come up at certain times of the day? Is it up or down? Are you aware of anything that may have precipitated or triggered the anxiety, or is it just a generalized anxiety? Um, What has helped you in the past to deal with your anxiety? Here's that assessment of their previous coping skills and their previous stressors. And once you complete this assessment process, then you're going to have a pretty good idea of what your priorities need to be, where the patient's strengths lie. This should help you to formulate appropriate goals that are based in the patient's ideas of what they need to accomplish, and also based in the priority needs of that specific patient. Now, I wanted to go ahead and talk to you about a couple of unusual therapies that you might hear about from time to time. One of them is called EFT, or is Emotional Freedom Technique. Sorry, I always forget what EFT stands for. But when you're looking at emotional freedom technique, this has to do with a tapping, and you tap on different body parts. It's based in some, I think, some uh, um, Asian cultures, but it has to do with um, these tapping on these different parts, and there's been quite a bit of research about this. Uh, There's some that occurred where 14 studies on EFT report that people who use tapping experienced a significant decrease in anxiety. A randomized randomized control trial from the same year compared the effects of EFT and cognitive behavioral therapy in the treatment of people for depression and anxiety. But So there is a lot of evidence out there. There's been a lot of testing to see how this EFT therapy can help people. And basically, people use EFT tapping when they're feeling anxious or stressed or when they have a specific issue that they would like to resolve. And what they do is they identify the issue and then test the initial intensity. like a per- So they'll be able to think about the problem they wish to resolve, and then they'll think about it on a scale of 1 to 10. And then before beginning each round of tapping, the person should decide on a simple reminder phrase to repeat while tapping um, these different parts of the body. And so then at that point, they're going to tap in a certain sequence. And the tapping in the sequence are to you know tap the top of the head directly on the center of the top of the head, Beginning of the eyebrow, just the side of the eye, under the eye, under the nose, at the chin, on the collarbone, under the arm. And when you're tapping, you use two or more fingertips and repeat the tapping approximately five times on each point. And then what you're going to do is test the intensity again. So basically, as you tap and you go through this process, you're thinking about that anxious thought and you're tapping and then you're like starting to resolve that. And I can tell you that, you know, I personally have experienced this. I have a therapist that I saw after my divorce, and we went through this tapping process with regards to my fear of traveling. I had a lot of anxiety about traveling because when I was a child, I had to travel with a grandmother 
who wasn't very nice. And so as a result, when I would travel as an adult, I would still get this, you know, sick feeling in the pit of my stomach when I would have to travel and this anxiety. And through this process of tapping, we were able to take out some of that anxiety and to remove it from that situation through this process of thinking about it and then tapping and then testing the intensity again. And I'm happy to report that whereas I used to hate traveling, I've actually been to England a couple of times by myself. So I can tell you that this type of therapy does work um, and can be quite helpful for people who are struggling with anxiety and depression. It is an alternative treatment for certain emotional and physical conditions. Some research indicates it may be effective for anxiety, depression, and PTSD. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of bring that out. And then I wanted to tell you about another one called eye movement desensitization. And it is a psychotherapy treatment that was originally designed to alleviate the distress associated with traumatic memories. Now, if you want to read a little bit more about it, please feel free. It's called EMDR. It does have some um, some risk associated with it if you trigger certain types of trauma during this process. And so you have to have somebody conducting this who is able to actually do a good job of dealing with the trauma that you may experience or you may relive as a result of it. I just realized I did fail to cover one sort of related to obsessive compulsive disorder disorder. And that is trichotillomania, trichotillomania, or excoriation disorders. And trichotillomania is when you're pulling out your hair or picking at your skin. Um, trichophagia is a word associated with that, and that's when you actually swallow the hair, which can lead to fur balls or trichobezoar. And I've seen this actually happen a number of times with some different patients where they'll pull out their hair. I had one lady who had beautiful hair that went down past her knees and she had pulled out the entire front of her hair. It was associated with her with some substance use. So it was very sad to see this beautiful woman who had, you know, done this to her body in this way. You'll also frequently see excoriation disorder, especially with people who have uh, meth addiction because of the fact that they'll pick at their skin. And so excoriation disorders are actually quite common. But I wanted to be sure I went over those so that you would have some familiarity with it. I'm going to end there and I should do one more podcast for this grouping of podcasts for uh, class period five. And the next one will be on um, the anti-anxiety agents. It should be a relatively short one, but I'm going to cover content from chapter 23. All right. Thank you for listening.